For those of you who are new, <laughs> um, we've, I've been in a series since January 3rd. You guys who've been here know that well because I've been doing this so long. And it's basically the series is, I felt at the beginning of the year the Lord wanted me to do this, and I didn't know how long we would go, and I've been just praying, you know, I pray about it, and, and today's the last day. And so we're, it's the finale, <laughs> finally, like when's this going to end? It's ending today. And it's funny, I was getting a little sentimental, I'm like, man, I enjoyed, it, 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 quite the journey, wasn't it? <laughs> Some of the more challenging messages you could probably hear. And you guys, so congratulations. You guys uh, uh, made it to the finish line with this series. Um, Since there's some new people here, if you want, um, we can send you previous messages. Uh, I've been so, so grateful for those of you who've been sharing how the messages have impacted you. And that is so encouraging. And so thank you all for for sharing that. Because, of course, when you're on my end... You know, you, you do this, and you do it by faith. This is what I feel the Lord's doing. And so to hear the fruit of it, and I realize even in the midst of challenging messages has been such an honor for me to hear. So thank you guys, and I'm glad to hear that some of you were impacted. And so today, uh, I thought for old time's sake, I would start off how I used to start off these messages. And the, the, the conviction I have about these messages is that um, I'll read you from Hebrews. Hopefully you guys who've been here regulars will know these by heart now. But re- Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Th- this is an interesting portion of Scripture that actually lists the foundational doctrines of Jesus Christ. Okay? And so I'll just read it. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ... Now, think about that. I I used to make this point that if you think of elementary school, you know, what do you learn? It's the foundational stuff like adding, subtracting, spelling, reading, writing, all this stuff. Imagine going to university without having elementary school. That's what this is saying. This is the foundation. He goes on to say that this is the foundational stuff of our faith. This is the elementary Christianity 101 stuff. But unfortunately, some of these totally get neglected. In the church, it's it's really, really that was, you know, in my experience. Of course, there's some who do teach on this stuff, but um, so let me just keep talking. So, um, so let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation. And here we go. He lists them of repentance from acts that lead to death, and of faith in God. Instruction about cleansing rites. Other translations say baptisms. The laying on of hands the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, of course, I have that highlighted because that's what I've been focusing on because, like I said, well, first of all, I felt like the Lord wanted me to do this series, but secondly, because this foundational Christianity 101 teaching has been neglected for the most part in the church. And, and you don't hear messages, and I, I, I think I know why, because they're challenging at times. You're talking about eternal judgments, of course, uh, the ramifications and the implications are, make us uncomfortable. And so it's not easy sometimes to be talking about this challenging stuff. And I think that's why people tend to shy away from it. You don't want to offend people. But how many of you know, like, you, if, if Jesus Christ, if this is a foundational teaching of Jesus Christ, and te- Jesus, now you guys know this well, he taught on this a lot. 
He took, like, right? I've been on this for six months, and I could keep going, but I just felt like, no, this is now. How many of you know, we, we, if Jesus didn't shy away from this and he taught it, we need to teach it. We're doing people a disservice by, not, by neglecting the foundational teachings. How are we to go on to maturity if we don't have this as the foundation? Like I made a point earlier, how would you go to university without going to elementary school? We need to stop neglecting these things. And so now you guys uh, who've been here have hopefully have somewhat uh, at least scratched the surface a little bit on this stuff. Um, so now we have somewhat of a foundation. So now we can move on. But um, anyway, so here's just a few, few points um, that I make usually every time too is that we all, this is believer, non-believer alike, have to stand before Jesus Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, to be judged according to what we did in the body, whether good or bad. And we talked all about this, didn't we? That's uh, one scripture from 2 Corinthians 5.10. Everybody. So that when we die, that is the most important day of our lives. Everything we've done, uh, everything is going to be assessed on that day. And and. It's, it's going to have eternal ramifications. It's, it, and we've talked about this. The positions you have for eternity. The authority you have. The rewards you have. How close you're going to be to Jesus, for, to his throne. All of this is determined by this brief life that James calls a vapor. It's here today, tomorrow gone. How we live this brief life in the, in the prospect of eternity is like nothing determines how we're going to live forever. And that's why I was like, hey, this is, we can't neglect this stuff. This is stuff we should be thinking about regularly, like all the time, <laughs> you know, like, like I used to say, you know, we spend decades sometimes planning for retirement so we can have, you know, 10, 15, maybe 20 good years after we, why aren't we thinking about and spending at least, if not more amount of time planning for eternity, Right. Because that's, that's forever. We can't even fathom that. I spent the first two messages just trying to grapple with eternity. Forever. It never ends. The second point is that there's going to be rewards given out and losses suffered. So the rewards are going to span a large range. Anywhere from being completely burnt up, and we talked about that from 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, to ruling and reigning beside Christ forever. And everything in between. So, you know, depending how we live this life is going to determine our positions, you know, all of that stuff. Now, I gave you this scripture just a minute ago, but one thing I want to just, I always emphasize is these are eternal judgments. What does that mean? That means they'll never, ever, ever be changed. That's the intimidating part about this. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5.10, you might remember right after that, when he talks about the judgment seat of Christ, he says, so then we know what it is to fear the Lord. Let us persuade others. Because when you talk about eternity, when you talk about eternal consequences, eternal judgments, that brings the fear of the Lord. That, and the fear of the Lord is a good thing, right? You want the love of God, the fear of God to stay on the path of life. So it would be good for us to find out what God has for us now rather than being surprised by it on Judgment Day. And a lot of Christians, because this is being neglected, just go through life not ever thinking about this stuff, just hoping it'll all pan out. But I hope by now you realize the importance of, no, we got to think about this stuff. We don't want to stand before the Lord and be totally shocked one day and have everything burned up. We want 
And, and this is the beauty of it. We can have, we can rule and reign beside Jesus. We have the potential. Every single one of us has the potential to sit by Jesus Christ on his throne or near his throne. Right? So that's the beauty of it. Now, that's what I wanted to emphasize today. This is how I want to finish this series. Because throughout the series, I'm like, someday I'm going to preach on eternal rewards. <laughs> Finally, we're here. Now, the, the thing about eternal rewards is, is I was like, man, I could go in so many directions. I could have a series on eternal rewards. There's so much in the Bible about eternal rewards. So I have to really like consider and pray about, okay, what am I actually going to talk about today? And so what I'm going to do is give you a message that I felt to emphasize. And then um, for those of you who are interested, I, I compiled a whole, whole list of slides just on the promises and of different scriptures throughout the Bible on rewards, what they're connected to, the different kinds of rewards. And when I send out the link to the PDF on the Joyful Tidings, you, if you're interested, you could go uh, through the specifics on your own time. Um, so, yes, this is what I'm going to talk about today. So I already said that we're all, each believer is going to stand before the Lord to give an account. Now, this is the awesome thing is, so that we can receive eternal rewards for what we've done, right? Jesus says in one of the promises, if you give a cup of water to somebody because he's my disciple, you're going to not lose your reward, meaning we'll get rewarded forever for giving someone a cup of water. God, these my things that seem like we would not even think anything of and just forget about, God never forgets. It's amazing. He actually remembers the time you gave someone a cup of water and he's going to give you a reward for it. It's amazing. It's, it's just phenomenal. That's how good God is, right? He is a good father. He is just, and he wants to make sure that you are blessed above and beyond all we can think or imagine for these little things we do in this life. It's awesome. So what I wanted to say is this is a biblical teaching that shows up throughout Scripture. This isn't just some obscure verse you find. I mean, you guys know that by now. We've actually talked a lot about rewards here and there throughout even though I hadn't emphasized the whole message on it yet. This is everywhere in the Bible. You just can't get it. That's how I could spend, what is it, like six months almost on this and keep going if the Lord wanted. But no, I, uh, I'm just saying there's a lot on this. This isn't, so we, there's no excuse, right? Like we, we can and should be thinking about this stuff all the time. Why? And I have here, I've never done this before, but I wanted to emphasize, this is a fact, Jesus Christ talked about eternal rewards more than any other person in the Bible. Like, by far. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, for whatever, and I'm going to talk, why did he? There's reasons why he did. He talked about rewards a lot. Like, all the time. Now, before you say, <laughs> well, I'm not really into rewards, into the whole reward thing. I want to just remind us, because, well, remember that it is Jesus who's offering them. Jesus Christ, for some reason, think about this, is using eternal rewards as an incentive. So he wasn't a little bit off base by offering rewards as a motivation. He couldn't. He's the son of God, right? He wasn't off base. So this isn't like... It, let me put it this way. It isn't wrong to have the motivation to seek after rewards because Jesus is the one telling us to. And we'll go over that more detail in a bit. 
But he, but I want to just say he didn't lose his noble motivation. He knew how important this was. He knew how important they were. He saw it fit that I'm going to make sure I talk about this a lot throughout Scripture, so that you'll have this as a foundation. There's a reason for it. So I, uh, for those, some of you know this, I was a professor uh, at Tyndale for a while before we got this job and. And I used to teach social psychology. One of the topics was altruism. And because it was a Christian uh, school, I used to give some teachings. And inevitably, inevitably, a student would be like, well, is, this, is anything truly altruistic if you're doing it for eternal rewards? <laughs> Isn't that a good question? My, my answer to that would be, if Jesus is using this as an incentive, then it is totally righteous and pure, and we should. This is an exhortation, and I'm going to show you Jesus, it's an imperative. It's an imperative that we seek after these things. It's actually Jesus from his own lips saying that. It's not just some wealth and health thing. It's Jesus Christ, the Messiah, telling us to do this. So if he's telling us this should be a motivation, then it should be. It's a good thing. And I have no problem saying it, because I'm telling you, and you're going to see Jesus talks about this a lot. So why? Why does Jesus talk so much about rewards in the Bible? It's a good question. I'm sure there's a lot of reasons. I'm just going to hit on a few. Rewards, and now this is an awesome thing, because God is love. Jesus is the perfect expression of the Father. So his motive is always love. And rewards, eternal rewards express how Jesus feels about our love for him in this life. And about working closely with him in what he calls precious. So in other words, rewards are his expression of love towards us. It's like, I love that you loved me so well in this life. I'm going to give you this amazing reward forever. Like, you know, because you came into agreement with what I found precious, that therefore you're getting this crazy reward forever. Like, Amazing. You know, and so it's really an expression of love for how we obeyed him. If you guys remember, we talked about this, that Jesus over and over and over and over multiple times, especially in John 14 through 16, says, if you love me, you obey my commands. He says that like, I don't know, five or six times in like those two chapters. Obedience is connected to love because if we obey him, that really shows that we love him. And then he's like, that was awesome. When no one was looking and you obeyed me anyway, even though no one was looking, I saw it. Here's this crazy reward that you're going to get forever. And you'd be like, well, I forgot I even did that. I didn't forget, says the Lord. (laughs) I saw that and that was beautiful and I'm going to show you how grateful I am that you actually obeyed. Jesus desires his bride to be with him where he is and to be doing what he's doing. The saints are going to have great joy in walking closely with him in in heaven, right? And so this is an incentive. How we steward this life, it's clear, Jesus says, is going to determine how close we are to him. And you see this in Jesus' own life. He had an inner circle, didn't he? Of three people, 12 people, 70 people. But there was John, James, and Peter who were his inner circle circle, right? That's a model. I mean, really, there's going to, it's going to be the same in eternity. There's going to be people who are going to be closer to the throne than others. And isn't that an incentive enough 
Like that's the like best reward ever. Even if there's nothing, no other rewards, which there's a million, that in and of itself should be motivating. I was like, man, I want to be ruling and reigning right beside Jesus Christ forever, right? Being closer to him than, right? Anyway. So Matthew, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Matthew 25, 21. The Lord said, and well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. This is the parable of the talents. I will make you ruler over many things. Directly connected with how we stewarded what he gave us in this life. Enter the joy of your Lord. That's what I'm saying. We're going to have great joy working closely with him. It's a joy. It's like it's a day of joy for those who've been faithful. It's like, man, come, you, well done. You're going to give, get, I'm going to give you authority. You're going to be joyful for eternity. Awesome. And it's going to be a celebration. It's going to be awesome, Right? Now, some in the kingdom are called the least, some are the greatest. I, ta- I alluded to this last time. So Matthew 5, 19, this is at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount-ish. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches both, so not a, he's saying you want to practice and you want to tell others to do this too. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's why someday I'm going to do a whole series on <laughs> the Sermon on the Mount. Mike Bickle always says that. He did his whole series on this. He's like, I, I have, my motivation is this. I want to be called great, so I'm going to teach you this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, so, directly correlated, isn't it? With, with our obedience, with how we uh, uh, steward what he's told us to do in this life. So, the question is then, how do you become great? You know, we talked a little bit about this last time. It's not by law, that's for sure. And if you haven't, I'm not going to go in that, because if you want, you can hear my message last time. It's by the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit. But God, this is really important. God looks at heart responses, not abilities. Right? We talked about this when I talked about Matthew 25. That God gives us our talents. It's a gift. Right? He gave one, five, one, two, one, one talent. In other words... Um, we're not going to be assessed with our influence, meaning like because Reinhard Bonnke is influenced, I always use him, Billy Graham is influenced millions of people, um, doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to get the greatest rewards. Judgment Day is going to be the great equalizer. It's clear. So what's that mean? It means people with mega ministries aren't necessarily going to be the ones who, who are called great in the kingdom, for sure. For sure. Because we don't determine. We don't determine the amount of talents we're given. God does. That's a gift. So the amount of influence we have is a gift. And we need to steward that, but it's a gift. Some people, most people, I don't want to say most, a lot of people aren't called to be Reinhard Bonnke's. A lot of people are called to be an, a lawyer, an accountant, a dentist, a stay-at-home mom, and influence whoever God's called you to influence. You remember when I, I always talk about Rick Joyner's book, The Final Quest, how he, most of the book is actually him in the throne room of Christ talking to people who had mega ministries who were least in the kingdom because of uh, uh, putting ministry before people, because of all these different motives that were wrong. And then he said most of the seats beside Jesus on the throne who were closest to him were praying mothers and women. The single most uh, group that occupied the most thrones. So there is, we all, no matter who you are, what you do, if you're faithful with what God's called you to, have the potential. We don't have to be Reinhard Bonkies. Have the potential, just by praying and whatever, 
to be closest to the Lord. And isn't that all? That's exciting, right? So if you're a one-talent person, that doesn't matter. You double that, you're going to get the same praise as the five-talent person. So God looks at heart, this is important, heart responses, not abilities. Because he gives you your abilities. He gives you your gifts. He gives you your calling. And you need to steward that, but he's looking at your heart. And this is why some people who are in mega ministries aren't going to be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay? Some people who are called great in this age, who we think are great, are called least, will be called least in the age become because they lose their way in their heart response realm. It's all about the heart. Jesus makes this clear in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to, that's why I'm going to talk about that a lot, quite a bit later. It's all about the heart. Okay? Which is the glorious thing. And in fact, Jesus says it's hard. It is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? We'll be talking about this later too. Thing, those things get in the way. In fact, it's harder if you have a lot, if you're entrusted with a lot, to, to become great. Because there's so many things that get in the way of having a posture of heart that pleases the Lord once you get well-known and, and, you know, whatever, and have a lot of influence. There's a lot of temptations that come your way to get you off track. Now, if you persevere, that's awesome. And, and in the midst of that. But the point is, it's not necessarily, even though on this side of things, we think that success, God defines success totally differently, doesn't he? And we talked about that in the first couple sessions in this series. So this is good news. And I already said this, but we all have an opportunity to be great in the age to come. All we have to do is have a determination to be steadfast in servanthood and choosing righteousness, loving the Lord, obeying the Lord, right? All we have to do is persevere in this age and we can be, all of us have the potential to be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What defines greatness is what God esteems and remembers. And that's a tricky thing because, like I said, he defines success totally differently than we do. His definition of success is totally so... Um, people who look successful on the outside in our age, or in, in, this, in this realm aren't necessarily, in fact, a lot of people's names aren't even known in heaven who we all know, right? So God's, what we want to do is find out what does God esteem, what does God remember, and do those things, because that's what makes us successful. That's what will determine the rewards, the nature and amount of rewards we get in heaven. So this is the point, is that nobody might see the movement of your heart towards him, like just some examples, and you're serving, or in blessing your enemies, or giving, or the transaction in your soul related to money. But God sees it and remembers it and will reward you on that day. Your heart responses. So even though when you're, if you do something when no one's looking, God remembers it. That's awesome. So the question we should all ask ourselves is how responsive, how responsive in our, are we to him in our heart? Because like I said, you can't determine the talents, but you, every one of us determines our heart responses. And if you remember the parable of the sower, right? He talks about different heart postures. There is a posture of heart where you can have a 30, 60, 100-fold return. What does that mean? We can have a 30, 60, or 100-fold return in terms of our heart response towards God. Okay? So how receptive, how, how, how is your heart because it's all about the heart. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. Did you love him with all of your heart? 
with all of your soul and with all your mind, right? Did you learn to love? That's it. When we meet him face it, did you learn to love? Now, that's a multifaceted question, of course, is shown here. You love him with your heart, your strength, your mind, your, but the key is, did you learn to love God fully? I love this quote. I remember this is, I actually got this out of John Bevere's book, Driven by Eternity. I remember when I first read this in 2007, this quote rocked me for some reason. So I'm like, I want to make sure I have that in this last message. But this woman uh, actually had a visit. She went to heaven before she died. She lived in the 19th century. This is a long time ago. But she had a visit. She went to heaven, visited heaven, and right, she, one of her relatives was showing her around heaven. It was her, I guess what is her husband's brother who passed away and he was a strong Christian in in life and this is what he said to her and and she wrote a novel about this visit to heaven and it's called Intramuros you can actually find it for free it's a classic online I found it for free I haven't read it yet but anyway this is what her the relative in heaven told her when she was visiting he said if only we could realize while we are yet mortals that day by day we are building for eternity day by day Every single, every day matters. And that's where it's easy to get lost, right? It's easy. The mundaneness of life, right? The routine. But that's the like 99% of, of like what, what our life is composed of, right? So what do you do in the day-to-day mundaneness? Is your heart still towards God? What do you do when no one's looking, you know? Day, every day matters. So, so anyway, he goes on. We're building for eternity. How different our lives in many ways would be. Every gentle word, every generous thought, every unselfish deed will become a pillar of eternal beauty in the life to come. If we could just grasp that. If we could just grasp that. That's what he's saying. How different our lives would be if we're living for eternity day by day. Every gentle word, every unselfish deed is going to be a pillar for eternity, of beauty. Because God remembers all this stuff. He remembers the cup of cold water, right? So if that's why I spent almost six months, well, granted I didn't preach every week, so however many messages, like 15, 16 messages on this. Because I want us to be thinking from an eternal perspective for the rest of our days on earth. Because if we can live for eternity, if we can realize the glory of the minute details of a gentle word to somebody, a word of encouragement rather than cutting them down, if we can just grasp the impact that'll have for eternity, how it blesses the Lord and how he's going to reward you for it, we, wouldn't our lives be totally different? You know, and I'm preaching to myself too, I know. Because we all need to be shifting. It's so easy to get our our hearts and our minds set on the temporal realm. Because that's what we know. Right? But we want to be living for the eternal. The realm that's more real than the temporal realm. That's going to last forever. We walk by faith, not by sight. And this is how we do it. We consider the fact that we're living for eternity, not for the temporal realm. Because all the stuff's gone. All the stuff's gone. Once you pass away, the only thing that matters is the stuff that God esteems and remembers. And that's what we want to live for. So Jesus gave us the revelation of rewards so that we would put them before us as a goal for our life so that we live 
for the eternal. That's why, remember my question, why does Jesus talk about rewards so much? He's using these things as a godly motivation for us to do the right thing in our day-to-day walk, in our hearts, in our deeds. So he's using this as a goal. It's a godly thing. He's using these rewards as motivation. Often people are interested in gaining more in this age without thinking about the rewards that are meant to motivate us. And that's why I want, I'm advertising with some of this stuff. It's like, we should be thinking about this stuff every day. You know, like, um, I, I won't even ask, but how many of us even think about rewards? Even though Jesus talks about them so much. You know, how many of us actually think about them, like, ever? Or, or even consider, everything I do has the potential to have an eternal impact forever. So there's a good reason why they're in the scripture. They're an important part of our eternal destiny. A really important part. And that's why Jesus gives so much information on them. So types of rewards. Now this is something I decided not to do. um, But I'm going to advertise and talk about it for a minute. And give you the slides if you want at the end. And you can look at it in your own. But Revelation chapter 2 and 3. From the lips of Jesus Christ. That portion of scripture, and I have, I tried to, Revelation from Revelation 2 and 3. Anyway, there is more about eternal rewards in those two chapters than anywhere else in the Bible. There's at least 20, depending how you count them. Uh, some say 22. There might be more or less, depending how you count. But regardless, in those two chapters, Jesus talks more about rewards than anywhere else in the Bible. It's really interesting. So, like, what's interesting is if you consider the rewards and what they mean, it's really neat. And you could do a whole series on that, which who knows, maybe someday I will. I don't know. Like, talking about the seven churches. Now, it's just for those of you who don't know, that's when he, ta- he talks to the seven churches. And to each church, he has an exhortation, an encouragement, and a rebuke, usually. Not all of them. Philadelphia, there wasn't one. A rebuke, that is, because they're doing good. But then he says, every reward, there's a condition. It's not, it's not everyone gets these rewards. To he who overcomes this specific thing I just talked about... This is the reward you're going to get. And then every single reward, he says, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Meaning there's more to, the, to this than the eye sees. There's, you need to seek the Spirit for what this specific reward means because there's a lot of glory to it. Just as an example, I always allude to Revelation 3.21. That's, that's to the church of Laodicea. For those of you who don't know, that's the, their deception. Their rebuke was that they're lukewarm. Now, unfortunately, that's something that in the West, we have to overcome that deception. That's a prevalent deception. But, the, but what's interesting is that is the most glorious reward if you overcome that. The most glorious reward is, he says, for those who overcome will sit beside me in my throne. For those who overcome. So, I mean, not everyone is just going to... Because if you think about it, let's just hypothetically say three billion people are saved by, I mean, coming, talking about from beginning to the end of time. We'll just say, whatever it is, three billion. There aren't three billion thrones beside Jesus. Only those who overcome this specific thing are going to have that authority and ruling and reigning with Christ. So I remember Rick Joyner, uh, I'll have to paraphrase this, I heard this years ago, but he was saying that he was lamenting. He's like, God, can anybody great come out of this lukewarm Christianity in the West? Can you raise up any great people? Because it's so discouraging. And the Lord said, on the contrary, the greatest people are going to come out of the lukewarm church. Because it's, why is it the greatest reward, if you think about it, implication potentially is that that's because that's the hardest thing to overcome. Because it's so deceiving. In fact, he calls them out on it. He says, you think you're rich? 
You think you have it all together. I'm telling you, you're naked, blind, and poor spiritually. So it's a deception. And it's so hard to overcome. But if you overcome, if you overcome the lukewarmness, we have a, such a privilege in some ways to be in this lukewarm culture. Because if we overcome, we have the potential to rule and reign with Christ forever. So it's awesome. Okay. So <laughs> next slide. <laughs> I should move on. So there's going to be a vast difference in heavenly gifts and the measure in which people experience God's glory in the age to come. They're going to vary according to the measure of love and obedience we have. Now, I just gave this one scripture. It's an interesting one. This is in the context of Paul talking about our spiritual bodies when we're our resurrected bodies. This is one of the things. There's a vast difference in the amount of glory our resurrected bodies are going to have depending how we live. And if you read the final quest, the least had the least amount of glory and the, those who are greatest had the most glory who are closest to Jesus in the throne room. So, there, so this is 1 Corinthians 15, 41 and 42. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. He's talking about resurrected bodies. He's, what he's saying, you're, he talks about sowing. Depending how you live this life, depending how the, the state you're sown is going to determine the glory of your resurrected body. Some are going to be so glorious like the sun, others like the moon, others are going to vary from glory to glory like th- how different stars vary, is what he's saying. So there's a difference depending how we live on even the amount of glory we're going to have, the, the amount and extent of rewards we're going to have. Second John verse 8 says that. See to it that you don't lose what you've worked for, that you may be fully rewarded, that you may receive a full reward, meaning there's a partial reward scenario. There's a potential to lose your reward. And so the point is we want to run the race good till the end so that we have the full reward to the fullest extent possible. Now, I already said this. There's more about specific, what I say that is specific rewards. So there's specific things. If you overcome this, I'll give you this. If you overcome that, I'll give you this. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, I already said there's around 20 different rewards that Jesus promises to those who obey him faithfully and walk in mature obedience. He says to those who overcome. Many believers are, now this is the tragedy. Many believers are almost illiterate about these rewards. And I won't ask, but if I asked, how many of you could name like three of these rewards from here? I'm guessing most of us wouldn't be able to, or maybe, I, I hope I'm wrong. I don't want to ask. I'm just saying, hypothetically, because for some reason, we don't take these seriously, me included, <laughs> right? What, like Jesus, obviously, he thought it was serious enough to include in Scripture to these specific rewards tied to specific conditions, but we don't even think about them. What I want to say is we should be thinking about them. We should be passionate about and take them seriously to know that why Jesus offered them because knowing that if he offered them they're not irrelevant they're not idle or meaningless are they if Jesus saw fit to to promise specific rewards there's a reason right they're real and they mean a lot to Jesus enough to include it in the internal word of God so why like why not study them why not ask God for more revelation why not Use them as a motivation to overcome the specific temptations and sin that Jesus outlines in Revelation 2 and 3. All right. 
So without going into those specifics, because like I said, I'll just post them, or you could read that yourself. Why is this important? That's a, that's a good question. Why does Jesus talk so much about words? Because he is actually exposing matters of the heart. It actually all boils down to the heart. I'm going to show you that. That's why it matters so much to him. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. It's all about the heart. So when we stand before him one day, how we've stewarded our time, our money, our passions, everything, is actually an indication of what's in our heart. Just like Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then he says, by your words on the day of judgment, you're going to be condemned. And by your words, you'll be acquitted. Because what we say is actually what's in our heart. It's, a, it's actually expressing and exposing what's in our heart. And then if we say something weird, we got to consider, hey, do I need to repent? <laughs> what's it, why is this coming out in these words? There's something there. Anyway, here's an interesting parable. This is from Luke. I'm just starting in verse 15. It actually kind of starts in verse 12, I believe. But Luke 15 to 21. This is Jesus speaking. Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. It's a nice problem to have. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I like that he talks to himself. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. (laughs) And then I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, "Uh uh-oh, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? Verse 21. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. Like, this parable is a representation of our culture. This is normal in our culture. Like, this is how we think, right? Okay, I got all this money. What am I going to do? I'll go, you know, make a way to secure it so that I'll, be, I'll have a good time in this life. Where God's, okay, that's okay. It's wise stewardship. But he's saying, hey, if you're doing just that and you're not being rich towards God, there's going to be a rebuke that comes with that. So then Jesus goes on. He said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, now get this, he connects it with worry. He says, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, or about your body, what you'll wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They do not store, have a storeroom or barn, right? He's alluding to that parable. That guy stored it in his barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Who are of you by worrying... Okay, right? It's connected by, to worry. If you think about it, hoarding is connected to worry. It's actually fear that God isn't going to um, support you and supply your needs. So out of fear, you get into worry and start storing up yourself, yourself in barns for security. So he says, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry 
about the rest. Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass in the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Verse 29, and do not set your heart, he's shifting it now and showing this comes down to matters of the heart. Do not set your heart on what you'll eat or drink, the temporal. That's why I have that there. I want to show you, he's actually, what he's doing here is making a distinction between the temporal and the eternal. That's the whole point of this. He says, don't set your heart on eat or drink, the temporal. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, the eternal, and all these things will be given to you as well. Then he goes on to say, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Now get this, verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses the King, New King James says money bags. I like that. Provide money bags for yourself that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. This is in the context of that parable. Being rich towards God. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your treasure is in this temporal realm, your retirement fund, whatever, all the stuff you're doing to... For yourself, but you're not rich towards, that's the key. You can do that, that's wise. But you're not rich towards God, then your heart's going to be in the temporal realm. Then you're going to worry all the time. Because your mind is set on that. Your mind is set on this temporal realm. Your mind is set on the flesh where the Lord's like, no. Forget about that. Seek his kingdom. Store for yourselves treasures in heaven. Because if you do that, then that's where your heart's going to be. It's going to be for the eternal not for the temporal, and that's what's going to get rewarded. How do you live for eternity? How do you adopt eternal perspective? There you go. Store for yourself treasures in heaven. That's Jesus' exhortation. That's how you do it. If you want your heart to be focused on the eternal, store for yourself. Why are eternal words important? This is why. Because if your treasure's in heaven, if your motivation is to store for yourself treasures in heaven, that's where your heart's going to be. And that's how you're going to live a godly life. So the key point is the key, I already said this, to adopting an eternal perspective is to store treasures in heaven. Being rich towards God by using your strength, your time, your passions, your money, your wealth can provide money bags for yourself in heaven. Rewards that will never perish. See, that's the thing. Even if you be, Jesus says, right, what's good is it if you gain the whole world, you're a Bill Gates and you have billions of dollars and you lose your soul. All of that, when you died, right? That's, that's the whole point of this. Like, what's the point? That's silly to be so short-sighted that you're only thinking about the temporal realm when you're not even considering eternity. So wherever you're investing your wealth is where your emotions, where your passions, where your heart's going to be is what Jesus is saying. So the people who determine that their wealth is going to be in the eternity... Their emotions to begin to be formed around that pursuit, and that's how we live for eternity. That's how we can be confident before the Lord one day, when we stand before him, that he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Because I've given you this, you stewarded it well, you multiplied it for eternity, now I'm going to give you authority for eternity, and you're going to have an awesome time.
Mark 4.19. This is the parable of the sower that I was talking about. Now, there's three kinds of soil. This is the third kind. Look at what he says. I remember I, I linked it to worry. Mark 4.19. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things. What does he mean other things? Other things other than the kingdom. That's the context. For other things in this temporal realm. Comes and chokes the word, making it unfruitful. Worry, deceitfulness of wealth, like the Laodicean church, they were deceived about it. Desire for other things. So we need to not allow for these things to get in the way to fully giving ourselves to him. Our money, our time, our passions. Money and time are the big ones. Okay, I'm talking about money because that's what Jesus is talking about. But how do you spend your time? Right? If you, if you actually faithfully recorded how you spent your time, you know, for five years, how you spent your money, a lot of us would be shocked. Okay? Because that shows where your heart is. If, you're not, if your time spent, whatever, I won't give examples because I don't want people to feel condemned, but if your time's, most of your time spent on the temporal stuff, stuff that doesn't matter, your money spent on temporal stuff, you're not rich towards God with your time, with your money, with your strength, that's what he's talking about. So we need to just, we need to just make sure, right? Like, okay, because all this stuff is good. And I'm actually going to give you scripture right away uh, to show that. But the point is we want to make sure, we just want to check ourselves and make sure, okay, where's our heart? Are we living for eternity? What Jesus thinks about us when we see him face to face on that day is the only thing that matters of this life. This is the scripture I was alluding to from 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 19. In the context before this, it's the famous scripture where he talks about how the love for money is the root of all evil. And it, many wander from the faith from that. But this is the part I wanted to emphasize, what he says after. Verse 17, command those who are rich. and Now, we're all rich. <laughs> the poorest person in Canada is rich compared to the rest of the world. Like, really Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So there you go. God wants us to enjoy our things. This is a good thing. Like, God is good. He's a good good God. It talks about how every good and perfect gift comes from God. And so he's awesome. He wants us to enjoy these things. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Why? Verse 19. In this way, they lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may not, or they may take a hold of the life that is truly life. That's what he said. This is what Paul's saying too, right? In a different way. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven, because where your treasure is, your heart's going to be also. But if your heart and your hope is in your wealth, that's deceitful, and you're going to get off track, potentially. So Jesus exhorts us, and this is an important point, that we are to pursue treasure in heaven as a literal reality. This is an imperative. It's not a suggestion, right? When Jesus says, um, right, store treasures in heaven, do you think, like, is that, is this just something, oh, we could either leave or take? It's, no, it's an imperative. Jesus is saying, no, this is how I actually want you to live. The way we live our life now will determine the extent of our treasure in heaven. So Jesus encourages us to make choices on this side that will make us rich in heaven. That sounds funny, but it's true, right? With a different measure of wealth related to our choices now. I, <laughs> I love this. Mike Bick always says this. The exchange rate is really high on this side of eternity. 
until you die, and then it plummets to zero. Yeah, and it's funny, you know, if you guys know Mike Bickle, he lives a simple life. And, I mean, he has an influential ministry. I'm sure he could make a lot of money. But he said, I determined, whatever it was, 40 years ago when I was a young 20-year-old something, 20-something-year-old, that I'm going to live a simple life and my money's going to eternity. Why? Because he has this revelation. So when people, people confront him, they're like, you have a poverty spirit. You're working, Right? Is what they say to him. Because like you, you have, you're driving a you know, whatever regular Honda Accord or whatever he drives you know, from 10 years ago and lives in a townhouse or whatever. And he's like, no, <laughs> you don't get it. I love wealth. I want to be stinking filthy rich. I want silver. I want gold. But I want it in the age to come. I don't want to store up for myself, you know, my barns in this age. He says, you don't get it. I want to be rich. I don't have a poverty thing. I just want my wealth to be in eternity like Jesus commands. So that's what he lives his life, giving, you know, and that sort of thing. And that's a God, I think that's a godly thing to have that mindset where it's like, yeah, because Jesus exhorts us to, no, I am, I do want to be rich. I just want to have the motive of being rich in eternity, not in this age. The exchange rate is really high in this side of eternity. Now, how do you store treasures in heaven? Overcoming by living for the eternal is the key. Now, how? There's, like I said, you just look at Revelation 2 and 3 if you want on your own time. He tells you how. If you overcome this specific thing, you'll get this reward. Like I was talking about earlier, right? So there's, there's actually indications of how you get certain things by overcoming certain sin and temptation. But I want to focus on Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6. And I've alluded to this a lot in this series, but I want to actually talk about it in detail because this is so important for what we're talking about today. Jesus talks all about rewards in this chapter. So I'm just going to start in verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. I want to, I'm going to, well, throughout you're going to see motivated by the temporal or motivated by the eternal. That's what it all comes down to. What Jesus is doing here is distinguishing, are you living for the temporal realm or the eternal realm? Because if you're living for the temporal realm, you're storing for yourself treasures on earth, that's your reward. And it's going to go away when you die. If you store for yourself treasures in heaven, though, Okay, so, so he gives different examples of what he's saying here. Notice the word righteousness. Don't practice your righteousness to be seen by others. Okay, so verse 2. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. That's the re- temporal reward, to be honored by others. Can you imagine that? Apparently they used to do that. Dun, 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 have a trumpet. I'm giving to the poor. Look at me. Do, do, do. So silly, right? That's what they're doing. It's so silly. So, so look, that's what I have in brackets. Motivated by the temporal. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. That's their reward, the honor they wanted. That's it. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand's doing so that you may give in secret. That's the motivation is the eternal, right? So you give in secret. That's motivated by the eternal. Then your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. The eternal. We're talking about, remember, motives of the heart, heart responses. Why are you doing what you're doing? So he gives another example. When you pray, 
So it's not all just about money. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. That's the reward. We're talking, right? Honor, reputation. Ooh, you look so religious. Cool. Look at, you know, Pharisee so-and-so praying over there. Like, you know, so silly. But that's what he's saying. Don't do that. That's silly. That's your reward then. That's your reward. <laughs> Truly, I tell you, they've received the reward in full, the temporal reward. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who's unseen, motivated by the eternal. Right? What are you doing it for? The eyes of the Lord, not the eyes of men. Then your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Eternal reward. Then he gives another example, if that, <laughs> that wasn't clear. When you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces and show, uh, to show others they're fasting. Motivated by the temporal, right? Truly, I tell you, they receive their reward in full. That's the temporal reward. But when you fast, put oil, and Trisha talked about this last week, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only your father's unseen. Motivated by the eternal. And your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Now look at what he says right after this, after he gives us three examples. Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth. Do not be motivated by the temporal. So we're not just talking about money now, are we? The treasures on earth are honor, reputation, all the stuff. All the stuff, right, that people value in this age. He says, don't do that, because it's temporal. That's what he's saying here. Moss and vermin destroy it, and where thieves break in and steal it. But, here's the imperative, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Be motivated by the eternal, in other words. Where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For, here we go. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see that, right? So he gives all these examples, and this is his summary. This this is the conclusion. I gave you all these examples to show you what I'm talking about. Don't live for the day. Live for the eternal. Don't do things for the eyes of men. Do things for the eyes of your father. This is how you get rewarded. It's all about the motives of the heart. Okay, so then I already I read the whole thing from Luke, so I won't read it again. But he, then he talks about don't worry, right? Because look at the birds of the air and all that. So I'm going to skip to verse 31. So don't not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Do not be motivated by the temporal. For the pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Be motivated by the eternal. Remember how he started off in verse 1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness in front of others so that you won't lose your reward. So what does he mean here when he says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? He's saying, all of these examples I have gave you, live for the eternal, seek first his kingdom by praying in secret, fasting in secret, make sure your motives are for the eternal, make sure when you do something righteous, the motives are for the eternal, that's how you seek, the, you seek his kingdom, you seek the eternal, you seek his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Not only these temporal things, that's the promise. Food, clothing, shelter, 
But the eternal rewards he promises that come from the right motives that is living for eternity, essentially. So he says, therefore, again, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day will have enough trouble of its own. I'm just debating whether to go somewhere with that, but I won't. Bottom line, we're to seek after his kingdom and his righteousness, being motivated by the eternal rather than the temporal. You see, that's what Jesus is saying, right? How do you get rewards? Do it for the right motives. Do it for eternity. Don't do it for men. Yeah, Trisha wants to say something. Um, just in regards to evaluating your life, like he talked about, um, you know, looking at your life and trying to evaluate if what you've been doing is for the temporal or for the eternal and, you know, measuring it by your time. But I just wanted to mention that it's not like um, there's no algorithm. <laughs> um, so it's not like, oh, if you spend this amount of time and this amount of time and this amount, anything that you do out of obedience is time spent for eternity. So work that you do out of obedience, even though it's for the temporal, which is money, you know, payment, it's still for the uh, eternal because it's done out of obedience, yeah. right? So on top of that, so just keeping that as your measuring stick, not like oh, you know, this is a fleshly thing and this is a spirit thing. It's not like that. Any, anything done for God is eternal, right? And then on top of that, I just wanted to add the quality of time and not the quantity. So you, because we have sometimes people who could spend like, you know, eight hours a day in prayer, but they're not really connecting with God. And then you have someone who works all day long and they have 10 minutes to decide if they want to go on Facebook or if they want to pray, and they take that 10 minutes to pray, and they just, like, connect with the Lord, and boom, you know, revival happens. It's just, like, you know, so powerful. So just those two things, remembering it's not, you know, spirit versus flesh things. It's, like he was saying, the motive of the heart. Why are you doing those things? You know, is it because you're honoring the Lord with those things, or is it because you just want to work more because you don't feel like you have enough money? That kind of thing, you know? So it's just the, the motive of the heart, and... Uh, the, again, the quality of time and not quantity. Does that make sense? Awesome, Trisha. Isn't it awesome to have a Holy Ghost wife? Thank you. That's great. That's right. That is absolutely right. I remember Rick Joyner was saying that. He was rebuked by the Lord one day. He's a full-time minister. And he said, you are, like, the businessmen who work all day long, like however many hours a week, and he gave them examples, they're doing better than you because the time they have, like say it's two hours a week, or whatever it was, they're giving that fully to me and that's, in my eyes, more than what you're doing. You're being so lackadaisical with your time, even though he's spending way more hours on the surface doing things for the Lord, right? So God looks at all that stuff. It's like, if you remember the, uh, uh, pair, or the widow, when Jesus, remember, I talked about this a few weeks ago when he's looking at the offering and the widow gave two pennies. He's like, I tell you, she gave way more than those rich people who are giving out of their wealth. Why? Because she gave all she had. So God looks at all that. He's the master accountant. So he knows how much you have, how much time you have, your responsibilities. It takes all of it into account. That's awesome. The key exhortation, like Trisha was saying, and what I was saying, and what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount, is seek the eternal. Seek his kingdom first, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
Make sure your motives for the eternal, not for the temporal. Okay? So, of course, we don't want to get into Gnosticism and bondage of like, oh, no, no way. But as we're finishing this series, I just want to exhort us like Jesus does. with What's the point of these rewards? Why is Jesus talking about these so much? Because he's trying to shift the way we think. He's trying to get us to live for the eternal, not for the temporal realm. He wants us to value what he values. He wants us to do things that will advance his kingdom. Not so we can store up for ourselves and become successful and great in this age. We want our success to be determined by how God defines success in everything we do. And that's the bottom line. Doing the best we can by the grace of God. So, so you may or may not remember, I started this series asking the question, what is success? Because <laughs> God wants us successful. And I love that this message of success has been so trumpeted in the last 30 years in Christianity, because God does want us successful, for sure. But the question is, what is success? Okay, so that's, an, that's, that's just a presupposition that I have, that God wants you to be successful. He wants to prosper you. He wants you to be healthy, all the things, because he's good. However, success in many times is perceived by the way society defines it rather than the way God views it, like John the Baptist, right? In the world's eyes, John the Baptist was very unsuccessful, right? He lived in the wilderness. He wore camel skin. He ate locusts and honey. He, right, dreadlocks. He looked freaky probably. So, so if we saw him on the street, we'd probably be like, man, that guy is unsuccessful. He's a homeless guy out in the wilderness, but in God's eyes, he said, Jesus says he was the most successful person born of a woman. I'm just giving him as an example. God sees things quite different than we do. So we want to define success how he does is the point. So success is often seen through the eyes of the temple rather than the eternal. And this creates a blur in understanding which results in misguided pursuits. And that's why Jesus uses rewards as an incentive that we pursue them, the eternal. Because in our motives and our heart follow that. So adopting an eternal perspective is key. To summarize this whole series, this message in this series. We will all one day stand before the judge of the universe, Jesus Christ. And if we've, what we've done, uh, and if we've made our life count through godly wisdom, then we'll be rewarded eternally. If we've been misguided in our affairs, we'll either be punished or suffer eternal loss. So, it's wise. Jesus actually, if you remember, links this to wisdom in Matthew 7. The wise builder built his foundation on the rock. The wise, the wise teacher, to, uh, is to, uh, so it is wise to find out what God is looking for. And that's why I spent so much time on this. For six months. So that you, like I say, my heart is that we would all stand before the Lord one day and hear his words, well done, good and faithful servant. That is my heart for this congregation. That is my heart for every single one of us to know, to know these things and do them so that we can be confident before the Lord when we stand with him. We won't be ignorant when we stand before him one day. And so we can live for the eternal. Our focus should be made to make our life count not only for today, but for eternity. So I want to, this last verse of this series. This is an exhortation from Paul, from 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27 from the Amplified. Do you not know that we're... 
that in a race, all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize. So run your race that you may lay a hold of the prize and make it yours. Now, every athlete who goes into training conducts himself temperately and restricts himself in all things. They do it to win a wreath that will soon wither. But we do it to receive a crown of eternal blessedness that cannot wither. Therefore, I do not run uncertainly without definite aim. I do not box like one beating the air and striking without an adversary. But like a boxer, I buffet my body and I handle it roughly, discipline it by hardships and subdue it for fear that after proclaiming to others the gospel and the things pertaining to it, I myself should become unfit, not stand the test, be unapproved and rejected as a counterfeit. Aim for the eternal. Run your race that Jesus set before you so that you would get the eternal prize that he has for you. And that takes discipline, Paul's saying. But that's, what, that's how we're to live our lives. He says in Acts 20, 20, my life means nothing to me. My only aim is to do what Jesus Christ called me to do, preach the gospel of grace to the Gentiles. Amen. So why don't we pray? Father, I thank you so much. <laughs> For your goodness, I thank you that you are a good Father who wants to reward us each individually uh, and corporately for how we lived our lives. I thank you for the honor and privilege it is to uh, stand before you um, giving an account for our lives for that, that you're not going to forget every single thing we've done, but that your heart is that we would receive an extravagant eternal reward for every single gentle word, every single unselfish deed, every time we set our heart to obey you when no one was looking, that you saw and recorded and will reward us forever and ever and ever and ever and ever for and ever for every single heart movement that has godly motives and that wants to obey you out of love. And so, Lord, we just give you all the honor and glory and thanksgiving um, and, and just ask that you would continue to reveal these things to us in regard to eternity so that we would live our lives every single day adopting an eternal perspective. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So